Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 plus. My name is Jody Avergan. This is where we have bonus conversations about some of the work we do here at 30 for 30. And I'm back with reporter Julia Lowry Henderson for our second conversation about the big Bikram series that came out earlier this year. Julia, nice to have you back. Hello. Hi. So as we said last time, this episode is going to focus a bit more on your story and your reporting. We're also going to answer some listener questions that have come in. We've gotten a lot of really good ones. And I guess we should add the disclaimer again that if you haven't listened to the actual Bikram series, go back and listen to those five episodes first and then come back here and listen to this behind the scenes conversation. But let's get into it. And Julia, I mean, I think we should just start with the most straightforward question about your experience, which is, do you consider this a personal story as you were reporting it? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer for this is that it's yes and no. It is a personal story in the sense that I did Bikram yoga for about seven years uh, until about 2010. For three years, I managed a studio. Um, So I had an understanding of the nature and the complication of the community. He would have two or three women, girls really, brushing his hair. So just brushing and brushing and brushing. I don't remember the first time I heard about the fact that students would massage Bikram or brush his hair at training. It was at least a solid decade before I started reporting the story. And so in 2013, when these allegations broke, and for a couple of years, I saw it pop up time and again in the headlines, I had an understanding or a belief that there was a lot more to the story than we were hearing or seeing. And so I knew it was going to be a story that would deal with sexual assault and rape and the difficulty we have, not only as a society, but especially in the athletic realm of dealing with those things responsibly. And I knew that it was a story of a community and a guru and abuse of power and rise to power and, you know, the things we will do and give up in the pursuit of bettering ourselves. And so my personal experience made me believe in the story, but, you know, my personal experience was not the story. Yeah. And so I want to I want to talk a little bit about this because listeners, you may not be surprised to hear that we spent a lot of time talking about your role, Julia, and how it would manifest itself. And I remember the kind of initial parameters of that conversation. We actually went and listened to a lot of other serialized podcasts, a lot of them that had a sort of personal connection. Um, Sort of one of the adages that we landed on that I kept keeping in mind was that you obviously have a role in this story, but your connection to it was not the animating question. But anytime that your personal experience allowed you to be a better reporter, then we would have you step in. Yeah, I think that that is a pretty accurate description of what we tried to follow. I had a specific teacher that said to me, there's a certain point as a practitioner that it's your responsibility to be a teacher. I can tell you from my own experience managing a studio and always assuming I would go to training someday that it was seen as an honor, validation for all the hours and money and sweat you'd poured out on the mat. Certainly with serialized content, because the duration of it is longer, people tend to put in a narrator who has more of a stake. Mm -hmm. And that in some cases succeeds and in some cases fails. You know, you can see where a story doesn't have enough to it where 
at some point a narrator who maybe shouldn't be the centerpiece is the only thing that's left standing in a series. And so it becomes about that narrator. We both understood that this story had a ton to it and the story itself matters and is big and is messy and is complicated and is worth telling. So to at any point to jeopardize telling it to, you know, give me time on stage, I think felt wrongheaded to all of us. Um, I think that guided us. But that said, you need someone to take you through that an audience can trust. And so I think that was an instance in which we would let my experience in this world and my connection to it, you know, it got me access to subjects. And I found myself having to do a lot of the work I was asking people I was talking to to do, to look back, reflect, Mm -hmm. make sense of, understand we used that in those cases to help our audience stick with the people in the story and the story. Yeah. And if you listen to our first couple seasons, we rarely go first person. You know, our philosophy here at 30 for 30 is just find a great story, kind of let it do its thing. The narrator should be compelling, but the narrator's personal experience or personal take is not the driving force. But obviously we were stepping into different territory for us, maybe more traditional territory for a lot of audio journalism um and we were trying to find that balance between a connection to you and then putting the story first and foremost there was also a behind the scenes element to this i mean we as radio makers kind of have to play a lot of different roles and there's the reporter role and then there's the producer role and at some point in any story you transition from living this story for in your case a year and a half And then having at some point to flip the switch and start thinking about the story as this kind of outside thing that you have to be slightly dispassionate about because you need to just start cutting the tape and telling the story. What was that transition like for you? Strange. Maybe not as clean or as easy as I would have liked it to have been just because even though, you know, a year and a half sounds like so long, it's such a super compressed timetable for something of this scope. There's some sense of relief when you finally flip that switch. When I finally get to that point where I'm cutting tape and I am allowing myself those moments of being one step removed and looking at this from, you know, a completely like structural or like unemotional point, you know, that is a sense of relief to finally get to that point and to and to do it. And if I can get to that point and it can become about looking at the bigger picture and the pieces that make up the bigger picture and putting them together and that's working and I don't, you know, end up disappointed or feeling like I've let someone down or myself yeah. down, like then I know that it all worked and I did the right things. Yeah, I mean, anytime you're telling a story, you have to craft a compelling narrative and then still, as you were saying, try and be true to everything you know about the story. And um, this also relates a little bit, and we got a number of questions about the sort of structure of this piece, that we at some point kind of made a mental shift that instead of trying to tell this story comprehensively and chronologically that we were really going to think of it as thematically. And certainly the story, what we released, the five episodes tend to be chronological, but just that that shift in editorial stance of we really want to think about what are the big ideas that help us understand this world of Bikram and then make sure we are laying those out in a compelling sequence and getting all of them, but not being totally beholden to you know every single moment in the just sort of real world narrative was a big I thought a big mental shift for us in terms of how we put it together. 
Yeah. And I think that that started to come in. You know, I look back at when I came to you guys and said, hey, I think that this is really a series. And I framed it largely around these themes. And I think that for a long time, we had a whole whiteboard wall that had all the themes that felt like they mattered. And so, you know, it became this organizing principle. And, you know, it was clear in realizing that, you know, this story felt like it was too much for one 45 to 60 minute episode. It was clear that in even approaching it in five episodes, that that's still not enough time to do, you know, 50 years of history, like blow by blow. And then you also find those moments where as a storyteller or a reporter, you're really frustrated with certain moments in that timeline that, you know, you're really working to fill them in and it feels like you're tap dancing or you're like mm-hmm. treading water. And and so those, those are, I think, were the two things that really helped us flip that switch and, and turn, you know, that framing and realize that coming at this from a thematic point viewpoint that got to everything someone would need to know to understand this community, this person, this world would be far more satisfying both in terms of the making but the experience for the listener than trying to do like the blow by blow of 50 years of Bikram Chowdhury. Coming up after the break, we'll start to answer your questions, but first a quick word from our sponsor. All ten fingers interlock position underneath your chin. Hold up on your thighs. Concentrate, meditate with me. And please begin to inhale. The dialogue, it's like the IKEA approach to yoga. Stretch up to the ceiling, go right and left a couple times. Right and left and right and left and right and left. Okay, let's get to some questions that have come in. Um on a number of fronts, but this one is from Danielle. So thanks for writing in, Danielle. She basically has a question about teacher training. Um, I have a question about the nature of Bikram yoga training. What gives with the bizarre requirement that teachers have to memorize the script? Is that really most of the training? I thought typical yoga training was more about anatomy and philosophy and finding one's own teaching voice and all that healthy hippie stuff. Bikram training sounds so left field. What does give with that? And this is a much of episode two kind of focuses on this. Yeah, this is a Bikram training is unlike really any other yoga teacher training that's out there. It's not about an individual finding their voice. It's actually by design the opposite. It is about finding Bikram's voice specifically through his dialogue. The dialogue is the way that he has codified his system of yoga and he ensures that the product that is in any studio that says Bikram on its door is his product. And so his teacher training is by and large about getting people who want to teach to memorize his dialogue so they can teach his class. It is somewhat rote. It is somewhat counterintuitive. You know, there are a lot of people who go through and, you know, memorizing 90 minutes worth of dialogue isn't that hard. And then there are a lot of people that go through that training that have never memorized anything that long or come in speaking another language first and foremost and have to memorize this dialogue in Bikram's broken English. And it's incredibly difficult. Uh, It is a huge chunk of the training. I mean, the trainees work on that every single day until at the very end, they finally get their gold star saying that they can 
deliver the dialogue. Uh, they're taking a lot of Bikram classes and they're listening to him lecture, but every single day they do something called posture clinic, which is not about postures. <laughs> uh, it is about standing up and reciting the dialogue for the postures. Yeah. And where does that come from, this desire to codify it and make you know word for word the same? Is it about control or is there a yoga reason for that? Well, I think it's largely about control. I can't think of a yoga reason for it. It is very much a business marketing mm -hmm. impulse or decision. Um, one that extends back, I mean, I listened to these tapes that Kier Delay gave me from the early 80s, and Bikram is p working on his dialogue then. Like, he'll talk about it. Use your extreme strength and the old flexibility. Try to go beyond than your limit of the flexibility and the strength. He often is improvising in those classes in a way that you don't hear in Bikram classes today. But every once in a while, he'll try to do what is deemed the dialogue for a posture, and then he'll pat himself on the back if he does it right, or he'll blame someone in the class for mm -hmm. messing up if he does it wrong. You do the same thing. Turn your toes more. Toes, the ankle. I just cannot scream anymore. Give me a break. I'm tired today. But this does extend all the way back to the 70s, 80s with him. It becomes a really big deal in the 90s when he wants to start training teachers. And it seems to be largely his idea, but also encouraged by those around him. Uh, his wife, Raja Shri, his senior most teacher, Emmy Cleaves, both get credited with really being the ones to push him to start a training and to do just this, to make his system something that's recognizable and undeniable. All right. Next question comes to us from Vanessa. So uh, Vanessa says she's practiced Bikram yoga for about five years, but had no idea about the history of the practice and no idea about Bikram Chowdhury and his allegations against him. Uh, she says, after listening to the podcast, I'm torn whether or not to continue practicing at my local studio. The name of the studio in my area still has Bikram in the title. So I don't know if the studio director is still tied to Bikram Chowdhury or is still loyal to him. If I do go back and decide to practice this yoga, I just want to make sure I am not contributing to him, Bikram Chowdhury, financially in any way. Well, first of all, I would suggest that she talk to the, her studio owners and ask them what they think or what their relationship is with him, um, because there is no hard and fast kind of standard at this point. Yeah. I mean, a studio could have Bikram's name on it and it could be purely a business decision. It could be someone that, you know, understands the power of a brand and is afraid to lose their brand at this particular juncture in time. I mean, there are all sorts of situations. In terms of financially benefiting Bikram Chowdhury, that's not really a fear. I mean, he never successfully franchised. So who knows what that studio ever gave him financially. It's possible, depending on how long that studio has been in existence, that they were given a green light to use his name without actually ever paying him a dime. It's possible that at one point they paid him a very small fee to first use his name. It's possible that, you know, for a couple of years they paid a small affiliation fee. But, you know, since everything came forward and he found himself, you know, the target of a number of lawsuits. Uh, basically, there aren't any studios that still give him money directly. He's not yeah. in control of Bikram Yoga Inc. There's no headquarters that's benefiting financially from any of these studios. 
But it is, I think, the financial question is not just, is there a direct payment to Bikram Chowdhury himself? But as we heard in the episode, they want to bring the Bikram brand back. So, you know, even just perpetuating that brand may have some financial implications and be complicit in that process. So again, I think it's just about having a conversation, an honest conversation with the studio owner and seeing, because just lay out the flip side, we heard from a lot of studio owners who feel like Bikram as a name that's on your studio, it transcends the man and is much bigger than that. And that might be the rationale there too. So so good luck, Vanessa, and let us know, you know what you end up deciding. Uh, another question that came in from Joseph, he writes... When you're working on a deep dive project like this, are you ever tempted to spin away from the podcast format and maybe turn it into a 30 for 30 video documentary or a book or series of articles or, you know, whatever? So how do we think about format? Uh, we're a shop that now makes short films, long films, short podcasts, long podcasts. What's our what's our thought process like? I mean, we we look at a story and think about what would be the best medium to tell it in. Um, that's kind of our guiding principle, uh, especially, you know, because we are so sort of ensconced in the film side of things. That said, I don't know. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, the whole time I was making this, I never once wished I was burdened with cameras or yeah. DPs or any of that stuff. Like, it was very, uh, you know, it was, <laughs> I was I was burdened enough with just me and my recorder and microphone. Um, but certainly that notion that audio is very intimate is true. And not that you can't tell a documentary film in that way, but I think as we discussed your personal element and the way you really had to work to get a lot of these women to open up for the first time in this way um, really was benefited by this format, both as a reporting technique, you know, you just go in and it's much lower impact than showing up with lights and cameras and all that stuff. But then as an experience, as a listening experience, I think it's more powerful. I mean, I'm gonna, of course, we're going to say that because we like audio. <laughs> but, but you know, I will, I will add the context that it's really cool, the position we're in here of 30 for 30, where we're part of this larger films team, we have a unified development process. So an idea comes in to our world, and we have the same team kind of evaluating it, and then in a position to say, oh, this is best served as a film, this is best served as a podcast, this is best served as multi-part. So we're having those conversations all the time about what's the best way to manifest itself, and we're having more and more conversations about finding ways to tell them in both. That, to me, is one of my favorite parts of working here is the diversity of formats, topics that we can take on. It's a, it's a good place to be. One question I think we should address here, and it's actually one that came up at the live event we did last week, which was a very smart question. Um, it was under this umbrella question of why is this count as a 30 for 30, this yoga story, but then specifically about this notion of coaching and the dynamic between a powerful, hard-driven coach and a student. And that's kind of a phenomenon we see in sports all the time. And so the question we got was, did we think about that dynamic as something that was universal to sports as we were making this? I mean, I think because yoga is a physical discipline uh, that, you know, it does get to come into the arena of fitness and sports and athletics. You know, I will admit that it's, you know, on the periphery, but um, I think that it's it's fair to consider it. I think that what was compelling to me about Bikram Yoga was the fact that its success was really predicated on the fact that it 
was so hard and athletic and that it turned yoga into something that we thought of as exercise. I mean, yoga is a mainstay when you think of fitness and exercise and well-being in this country. And, you know, it very much can thank the existence of Bikram yoga for that. It was really kind of the first athletic exercise-based yoga that muscled its way into that category and then rose to the top. And it has this thing that you just described where Bikram is, and he became successful because he looked like those coaches that we give so much credence and admiration to, you know, this no pain, no gain, tough as nails to the point of often abusive coach dynamic that we revere in this society and in our sports. You know, Bikram showed up and started doing that with yoga and celebrities in Beverly Hills, and it made him a little superstar. You know, people teach in Bikram style. It doesn't mean that they say the same types of things he says or they, you know, joke or insult the way he does. But there's something about the uh, kind of no-nonsense, direction-driven dialogue that even if you're not learning from Bikram himself, you walk into a class and it's very disciplined. And I think we as Americans take to that. We know how to mm-hmm. respond to that. We we have you know, culturally built in expectations that this means that it's working, that it's good for us, that it's going to be tough, but it's going to make us better. And he really understood that. I mean, I do think that comes from his own culture and his own childhood and his experience. But I think that he was very fortunate to understand that that would translate incredibly well here. And it did. And it made people think that he was the real deal. So one of the question a number of people have asked us, uh, we got a couple tweets about it and some emails. There was this Netflix series, Wild Wild Country, uh, and we can talk a little bit about what it's about. But basically, people said, did you know this was coming out and did you watch it? Did not know it was coming out. What is it? Seven parts? I mean, it's a multi-part film documentary, historical documentary about Osho and Rajneesh Puram, which was the commune that he built in Oregon uh, in the 80s and did watch it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had also, I mean, I had, I knew about Osho and I knew about uh, the commune in Oregon. And actually, I was aware of him and I was aware of what had happened there and I was aware of that movement um, and parallels that exist between Bikram and Osho, um, especially, you know, Tony Sanchez, for one, you know, remembers Bikram being aware of Osho and there sort of being an admiration of, you know, what that guy was pulling off in his wealth. But I did definitely, I binged that series hard when it came out. Yeah. So I had no idea about this story and I, we didn't know at all that Wild Wild Country was coming out. And then we started to, you know, when they started to promote it, I got wind of, oh, well, here's this you know, multi-part documentary, historical documentary about an Indian guru who loves getting rich and things go a little dark with his devoted followers. And I have to say, when it came out, I was I was worried. And I was like, I'm not going to watch this. If I watch this, it might take the wind out of our sails. And we were like in the sort of ramping up to the final push of editing. And we're so deep in this story that I was just like, this could this could just screw with my head if I, if I watch this thing. And I didn't even reach out to you and say, are you going to watch it or not? And then I just, you know, had a weekend, was around the house, had some downtime and just started watching. And I loved it. Like, I really loved it. I thought it was brilliantly 
put together. I thought the archival that they ended up with was fantastic. And I totally did not have the experience of it taking the wind out of my sails. It totally, you know, inspired me or I just thought there's the themes that they're exploring, which are similar to the themes that are that we are exploring are worthy of exploration. And ours is slightly different enough, but it but also it sort of reiterated to me that like this stuff is is worth exploring. Um, final question. Are you still doing yoga? No. Uh, I had actually stopped doing Bikram yoga a couple of years before this all broke. Um, sheerly out of life and circumstance and having moved somewhere else and, you know, you change, life changes. Mm -hmm. And then obviously this happening created questions for me. I mean, I also just didn't have the time. This is, I mean, Bikram specifically is a really time intensive practice. And I was in the middle of doing something else with my life and career that didn't really afford me that much space and time for that practice any longer. There are things that I do deeply miss about that yoga practice. I'm not sure if having reported this has like ruined it entirely mm -hmm. for me because I think that I don't know that I will ever be in the headspace where I can walk in and hear that dialogue and be in the construct of that setting and not have like all the pieces of my reporter brain start like rehashing everything they know. You know, that's, I think that's a mental discipline I'm, yeah. I'm still far from, but I do, I don't do yoga now, but uh, maybe now that I have some time back, I will do some yoga again. That's it for this bonus episode. Thanks to all of you for listening. We really appreciate everyone who has been engaging with our season of Bikram and spreading the word. And I'll say that we don't really do this on the podcast themselves, but I will say that if you have been listening and you want to leave a rating or a review, please do so. It really helps our rankings, which helps our visibility, which helps others discover the show. So leave us a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts. I will also say that you should check out the special website we've built for this series if you haven't yet. 30for30podcast.com slash Bikram. There's lots of stuff there. Photos of the characters and of Julia on her reporting. There's links to stuff to read and there's information about some of the live events that we're going to be doing. We might be coming to a city near you. So go to our website 30for30podcast.com slash Bikram. This is the last podcast of this season of Bikram. We are now officially in between seasons, which is when we bring you more 30 for 30 plus episodes. So keep your eye out this summer for some of those conversations about the films we're making here at ESPN Films. And then this fall, we will be back with an all new season of original audio documentaries. We're already plugging away on that. We're going back to individual episodes, one for each story, and it should be a good one. Once again, my name is Jody Avergan. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.